Can you hear me? Okay, the mic works. I scared you, Herb. <laughs> Let's pray together. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name, we want to give glory. Lord, I pray that your name would be exalted above all. Lord, I pray that as I preach, you would help me not to be controlled by anything ultimately except for a desire to please you, a desire to honor you in this moment. And uh, so, Lord, I bring you my few loaves and my few fish, and I pray that you would multiply them to feed this multitude. Lord, thank you for the privilege it is to preach your word, and I thank you that you care so much about your children. Um, You care about me as I preach. You care about every one of these here as they hear this word, and I thank you, Lord, that every word of yours is designed to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. So let your word go to work in us. We thank you that it's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces the division between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It gets to the places that only you can. And so, Lord, may your spirit go to work through your word in this time. I pray that all of us would be a little bit more like Christ, having sat under the word and got your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin with an illustration um, that I, help, I think helps get the spirit of the text. Um, and uh, I'll say at the beginning that I got permission from my daughter, Hosanna, to share this one. So if I share any ones about my kids, I try to ask them for permission for it because they don't get embarrassed as the pastor's kids. But it's not embarrassing. I think this is, a, this is a beautiful one that illustrates the point. But I remember when Hosanna was really young and, um, and uh, we would have our times of discipline And uh, one of the things that was so impactful to me about those moments would be after there was instruction, given explanation for why the discipline is happening, explaining to her like why God wants mommies and daddies to discipline their children um, and giving her the biblical reason for that and wanting her to hear my heart in it. And then going forward with the discipline, after I disciplined her, she would do something that left an indelible mark on me because I continue to think about it. Um, she would do is she would, she would get up, she'd face me, she'd grab my cheeks, pull her face close, and look me directly in the eyes. And that, in a sense, was her way, without even having to use words, of saying, where did that come from? Where did, like, I just wanted to make sure, where did that come from? Like, what was the motivation under this time of discipline? You know? and I think in, in a similar way, you know, you can imagine these young Thessalonian believers kind of grabbing the Apostle Paul's cheeks, going, all this ministry, where did it come from? Like, what motivated you? And this text really is Paul's way of saying, this is what motivated me. He wants them to know what it was that drove him in ministry. He wants them to know where this all came from, okay? And uh, so he's going to unpack that through this passage, and uh, he's going to do it in some ways through contrast. Um, And mainly, he's going to make a lot of negative statements. He's going to say, it didn't come from this, it didn't come from this, it didn't come from that. And uh, so here's some of these things to just get get walking through the passage right away today. So let me just read briefly, starting in verse 3. It says this, for our appeal does not come, does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, 
So we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Not this, not this, not this, not this. So this is Paul's way of saying, I want you to know where this came from. But to state it negatively, it didn't come from, and here we go, it didn't come from error, a corrupt message. It didn't come from impurity, corrupt motives. It didn't come from deceit, corrupt methods, like we're trying to trick you or deceive you in any way, you know, like we're trying to, like a fisherman trying to catch fish, you know, deceive them to thinking, oh yeah, this is a nice little worm. It's actually fake, you know. We're not doing stuff like that. Um, It didn't come from flattery, you know, not so much like in the sense of saying something nice to people that's not even true, right, trying to manipulate them. It's more of, here it's meant more of a flattery of speech of a willingness to corrupt truth to give people what they want. In other words, to fit popular opinion. And this is the opposite of the boldness that he describes back in verse 2 when he says, but though we had been shamefully treated, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And so his point is, is saying, we didn't manipulate the truth at all. We didn't try to twist things. We didn't try to change things in order to kind of tickle other people's ears, right? Or yours. So it didn't come from error. Didn't come from impurity. Didn't come from deceit. Didn't come from flattery. And it didn't come from a quest for personal glory or fame, right? Or even uh, a legitimate honor as apostles. Like his main, that wasn't their main thing to be honored um, or to be popular in anybody's eyes. You know, false teachers that and flatterers, that's, a, that's the cheap wage that they're willing to get, you know, in order to sacrifice the truth. They're willing to sacrifice the truth to get that cheap wage of that self-aggrandizement, that personal glory. But you hear Paul saying, our, our ministry didn't come. They're holding his cheeks. Where did it come from? Well, it didn't come from any of these things. It didn't come from a heart to please man, ultimately. That wasn't our aim. So then the question is, right, the children are leaning in, like, where did it come from? It didn't come from a desire to please man. It came from a desire to please God. It came from a desire to please God. It's not out of a desire to please people or even myself, ultimately. It's out of a desire to please God. So if you're going to put kind of the whole passage forward, you know, together, you know, Paul, you know, Paul is saying, basically, look, the, our ministry among you has been fruitful, but it's also been painful, right? Our deepest motivation, the thing that kept us going more than anything else was not our desire to please you, but it was our desire to please God. Paul's saying, look, ministry is way too costly to be just all about in the business of trying to please people. What we went through if we were just trying to please you, it wouldn't have been enough fuel in the tank to keep us going. It had to be for a greater purpose, a higher calling, and that is to glorify God. Ultimately, these things were done before an audience of one. That's why we did it. We wanted to honor God. We wanted to glorify God. And one of the questions you can ask in this passage that would be fruitful is say, where did the boldness come from? 
I mean, did you notice that? I mean, he says, you know, you know that our coming to you is not in vain. In other words, it's fruitful, obviously. You believe the gospel. You're emu- you've, you've emulated our example. Other people far and wide, other churches are being encouraged by the transformation in your lives. It's not in vain. And he says, though we'd been already shamefully, we've, been su- we've suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi. You go back to Acts chapter 16, you read about that. I mean, these guys were, I mean, he's Roman citizen, and yet he is stripped, stripped of his robes, beaten publicly, pummeled, and then thrown into prison. This is what happened in Philippi, right before they went over to Thessalonica, right? And you think like, you know, it's been enough for a couple months here. You know, maybe, maybe I took, I got my stripes now, Let's call it, you know? And, and Paul's, Paul's hard to say, like, look. So, so if you ask the question, where did the boldness come from? Because he says, he says, you know, though, although we had already been suffered him and shamefully treated and failed by, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of all these things. Like proof of Paul's sincerity is he didn't give up. He pressed in. But what, what accounts for the boldness? The willingness to preach the gospel, knowing that the same thing that happened in Philippi could happen in Thessalonica. The answer is that desire to please God. The fact that I already have God's approval in Christ is enough for me to go aim at the glory of Christ, to see him glorified among the nations. Y'all were worshiping idols. Christ deserves to be worshiped. For his glory, I went there. For his glory, I was willing to go to the next place even after getting beat down and shamefully treated. Didn't matter. It's not about me, right? It's about him. And that's why you have benefited so much from it. And I want you to know that. I want you to know what's behind me coming. What's behind the boldness? What's behind the preaching of the gospel? What's behind this fruitful ministry? He's saying these motives that are aimed not ultimately to please man, but to please God himself. And uh, so that's what it comes down to. And that's really, I think, the thrust of this passage and therefore the thrust of the sermon is this idea of um, pleasing God, seeking to please God and not ultimately man. And this is important, isn't it? You know, Paul is talking this way as a leader. How important is, is it for leaders to have good motives? I mean, could you argue, argue that a lot of the ails, if not most, in our society come from leaders that have bad motives? Like, we've seen the damage that it can do. So, this is also important. What, do, what does a church need from her elders? Leadership. You need to know that your elders are fighting tooth and nail to have motives that are shaped by God's word. And not are going to bend by any whim or taste that is, or anything that's just expressed to them. Like they're not going to be easily wait. Oh, there's a rich businessman in the church. You don't want to offend him because he's got the deep pockets. You know, like you want to know that that your elders are going to be faithful to the word of God, and they're going to want to please God more than they want to please any of you. Like that, that would be actually what would give a godly heart rest. And like, okay, our leaders want to please God. They want to please him. And this is actually a good prayer point for you. Um, as you think about it, as a member of the flock, pray this for your elders, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. But for all your elders, pray, oh God, give them hearts to not fear man, but to fear you. 
Give them a desire, a pure desire, not to just try to please people, but to please you above all. And as you're praying, you can know that you're going to benefit a lot from that kind of purity of motive. But this doesn't just go for leaders, right? I mean, it is primarily applicable here to those who are leading in ministry, but this is for everybody, right? Because every Christian, we're told in the New Testament, has a share in the ministry, right? In fact, elders, their primary job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so if this is true of God, what God wants for his leaders, this is true what God wants for all of his people, that our hearts would be shaped by a desire not to please man, but to please God. And so um, we'll pray that for not just the leaders, but we'll pray that for one another. And um, this is important here. And, and, you know, Paul, I think, felt the built-in accountability because he says, who was it that tests hearts? God is the one who tests hearts. Later on, he says, God is witness, right? This is his point is God sees into the depths of our hearts. He knows the motives that we are operating out of. And so he wants to worship, he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. You know, he wants us to delight in him in our inmost being. He doesn't want us to just go through actions externally. He wants us to worship him internally. Those actions would flow out of it. And so um, God is looking into our hearts. God, in a sense, is pulling you close and going, where did that come from? You know, this is God asking our hearts that question. Where did, where did that come from? And so the heart of this passage is this. Motives matter. God cares about what controls us. And one of the questions you could be asking yourself throughout this, and even as you leave here today, is what controls me? Ask that of yourself. What controls me? What is it that is controlling me? And I really want to help us think through this today. And I want us to think about it in these terms. I want us to think about it, the desire to please man, and then flip it and think about the desire to please God. Okay, so that's where we're going to go. And I want to get really practical. I'm really going to try to illustrate both uh, the desire to please man and the desire to please God, both from the Bible and from um, our age, the age in which we live, and so that we can kind of see ourselves clearly and think deeply about this. And so you get this language of, Um, not to please man, but to please God. That's another way of talking about um, the fear of man. Have you heard that phrase? It's in the scriptures, the fear of man, as opposed to a proper and healthy fear of God. So we talk about the fear of man, the desire to please man. We're talking about being controlled by the fear of man when our decisions and our actions are based on what other people think instead of what God thinks of us and wants for us. Okay, so we know we're being controlled by the fear of man when our decisions and our actions are based, you could even say our responses to things, are based on what other people think instead of what God thinks of us and what God wants for us. And so I'm going to give you some examples of this desire to please man, in this case, not a good thing. So in the Bible, think about this. Do you remember when uh, the, the Israelites that came out of Egypt, right? God rescued them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm from the most powerful people on the planet, the, the, the Egyptians, okay? He parted an ocean so they could walk through, brought them through on dry ground, 
uh, drowned their enemies. They came through on the other side. He gave them the law. And uh, now he's going to lead them through the wilderness. And he's promised them the land, the promised land, right? A land flowing with milk and honey. And God had them send out spies, right? To go check out the land and come bring a report of the land, okay? The majority of the spies came back. They're like, okay, tell us, what was the land like? Oh, it was glorious. You had these clusters of grapes falling from the sky. I mean, they were just, just waxing eloquent about how beautiful and how lovely this land was. But they're like, but there's giants there. So we can't go. It's over, you know? And so you ask the question, like, okay, what was controlling them? Fear. Fear of man, right? What these giants could do. What should be controlling them? God, his promise, his word, right? But just to see, that controlled them, right? And that kind of poisoned the rest of Israel. That response poisoned the rest of Israel. And we know that it didn't go well for them. You know, this was kind of a turning point. Things went really downhill. Read the book of Numbers and see how that goes. A mass graveyard in the wilderness, right? Fear of man was at the root of that. Think about that. This is so destructive. Think of uh, the false prophets of the Old Testament. You know, wicked kings loved false prophets because they always told them what they wanted to hear, right? And so they hated like an Elijah. They hated a Jeremiah, right? These guys that would actually say hard things to them. No, they, these false prophets, they would just tell them, even if it led the entire country, right? All of Israel into enslavement, being besieged, right? Um, being out of step with the will of God and the kind of curses that could fall on them because of that. Didn't matter because they wanted to please man. When they were summoned by the king, just tell the king what he wants to hear because they feared man. They didn't fear God. Or take another example. Think about Peter, Okay. We're in Holy Week, entering into Holy Week. Think about Peter near the end of Holy Week, okay? Jesus was in the garden, sweating drops of blood. He's in the shadow of the cross. He knows what's to come. He knows not only of the physical suffering, but the spiritual suffering he's going to experience in a few short hours. And um, he is arrested, right? And then he's put on some mock trial. Peter is outside warming himself with some of the servants, right? And... Um, and a servant girl says to him, looks across the fire, you're one of them, right? Uh, no, I don't know what you're talking about. A little bit later, again, right? Again. So what's controlling him? Fear, fear of man. Where did that lead for him? To deny his master, the one he spent day and night with for three years. He was willing to deny him. Why? Because he feared man. He wanted to please man and really wanted to protect himself. There does seem to be this intimate connection between selfishness and fear of man, I'm noticing as I'm studying this. But notice these examples. There's, these are examples from the Bible of fear of man and some of the catastrophic you know, things that, that came from that. But think about examples in our day, okay? We don't always think in terms of fear of man for some of these things, but it's good for us to, to pause. And one of the dangers of giving a lot of examples here is I'm not going to be exhaustive. It's impossible, right? So I'm trusting God will give us enough humility and grace to be able to kind of go, okay, 
uh, that the, the shoe fits there, but even if it doesn't, and some of these things don't hit head on, like get the concept, get the concept and test your own heart with this. Get the category clear in your mind. So here's some examples from our day on the desire to please man that can control the heart. Think about the way a lot of parents parent nowadays, right? They're more shaped by the whims of their children than what? Than what God wants, right? So all of a sudden, that, that desire to please even the littlest of people all of a sudden becomes the all-consuming thing. That's a fear of man. I don't want to displease, and I certainly don't want the throwing of the fit in the grocery store, <laughs> right? And so appease, appease, right? But that's, that's a form of fear of man. It can come in all kinds of shapes and forms. Think about friends in friendships. Friends being controlled by the thoughts of their friend. What do they think of me? What would they think of me if I, if I did this? That becomes the controlling thought, right? Because we talked about it's when our decisions and our actions are based on what other people think instead of what God thinks. This, this can just radically shape friendships. And the, the sad thing about it is when that's what shapes our friendships, it, it really, really makes it impossible to love each other well in friendships. Um, or think about sh- an unwillingness to share the gospel, Probably the number one reason Christians don't share the gospel is because they fear man. That's what, that's what comes over us most of the time. It's, it's a desire to please others or not displease them, right? And so we're not willing to share. That's what's controlling our hearts in a moment when we are, get a chance to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Or think about um, being too intimidated to show hospitality, one of the reasons people won't show hospitality is because they're so afraid of what people think of them. It is a vulnerable thing in some ways to open your home, right? Uh, and that can be something that just goes, oh, I'm just, I'm not willing to do it because I don't want them to think this about me. I don't want them to think that about me. I don't want this. So it controls your decision not to show hospitality even though it's a clear command of God to be hospitable. So we can see that. Um, think about that willingness to listen to gossip or slander. What's happening there? You know it's not right. I know it's not right. But what is it that keeps us from actually saying what needs to be said in a moment like that to stop it? Instead, we're willing to listen to it. Who are we trying to please? Man. We're trying to please man in that moment. Or I think it can be a huge challenge. We can't, like when when we're a person that can't say no. People have to, you know, people ask us to do this, that, this, that. We just can't say no to anything. We don't want to let anybody down, right? And it's a, it's a good desire to want to be helpful and things like that. But when it's just not sustainable and it's ultimately not good, but we just find ourselves like enslaved to this. I can't say no. I can't let anybody down because that's what's ultimately controlling us. Or, um, I, you, I mean, you could fill in the blank here. I can't do blank or they will think less of me. I think about this, a willingness to be vulnerable, to share hard things that you're struggling with with someone else. What is it that holds us back from being vulnerable with others? Even though we need the help, if we're honest. Fear of man. Or take um, this one. Uh, This this one can be a challenge. Uh, I know it has been for me. Um, I I have to do this perfect. It has to be just right. Now, 
Why? Now, this, the challenge about this one is that excellence is a good thing. It's good to strive for excellence in things, right? But the question is, why? What's driving you so hard for excellence? What's the motivation, right? Is because you just really want to do this to honor God that much? Or is it because you want to be thought of in a certain way by others? Or think of kind of the addiction to affirmation, where you're angered when you're not recognized in the way that you want to be. There's such a craving to be recognized, you become controlled by what other people think about you, whether or not they're recognizing you in a certain way. It's fear of man or this. Or when you're crippled by criticism. Okay? So you're criticized and you're just, you fall apart. Right? You're just kind of unraveled when someone says something hard to you, even if it's true, and because you have to have their approval. And since you don't have their approval, evidenced by their criticism, right? You get crippled by it. And here's a, here's a way to think about this, okay? This, this, is, a, this is a big one. Because um, there can be different times when you're experiencing criticisms. Um, I'm no stranger to it in leadership. But uh, I remember uh, a biblical counselor using this example, and he was talking about how when he would preach, um, and he was going through some things in the church with certain people, and, and, uh, and he just felt like this, like what they thought mattered so much to him. So he, he gave the example, he's like, when I looked out on the congregation, there was like people, and then there was them. And their heads were like huge. <laughs> like they were so big, you know? And so it's just like, you're scanning, you're like, whoa, <laughs> you know? Because that's, that's what stands out, you know? And it, and it brings a lot of truth to Ed Welsh's book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, right? And so who are the big heads in your life? <laughs> that's a weird way to put it, but you get the idea, like, who, who are the people that, like, their thoughts of you, like, and th- there's a balance here because you should value at one level, we're going to talk about this later, but I just want you to get the idea, you know, are you crippled by criticism, where if they were to say something, or they criticize you, and all of a sudden, vroom, their heads are so big, that's a sign that you're wrestling with the fear of man in the heart, and as I said, um, also, last one here is this, that selfishness can be deeply connected here. You know, because um, sometimes it's an aim to please others. Sometimes that other, like, like aim to please man is really like that man, like yourself, right? And so, like, in, in that sense, it's like the fear of not wanting to displease your own flesh, you know, in that way, because you're wanting to feed that, and that becomes ultimate, okay? But I think you kind of get the idea here. But I want to take this one step deeper, because I think this is in Bible, I think this is important, to be able to think well biblically about this, because there is something to be confusing here. If you know your New Testament pretty well, you're going, aren't we supposed to please, please people sometimes? Like, like, is it bad to want to please others? Or another way to put it is, should we care what others think? Is it bad to want to please others? Yes and no. Should we care what other people think? Yes and no, okay? That's a, bibl- that's a really textured biblical answer to that question. And I just want to show you it from a couple texts. So for example, you're like, is it, should, is it bad to want to please others? Well, uh, yes, in the sense of our text here, Paul says clearly implies like for him to want to aim ultimately to please man would be wrong for him here. That would be bad motives in this text. Or take Galatians 1.10, even plainer in some ways. He says, 
For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? And he says this, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Like if that's what's controlling me, I'm no longer serving Christ anymore, right? Serving something or someone, but it's not Christ. And so you could say, um, so it is wrong in a sense to try to please man, but there's also a sense in which it's not wrong. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 33, it says, just as I, Paul says this himself, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, that's a selfishness piece, but that, but that of many, that they may be saved. That's the same um, idea where he's saying, um, I become all things to all people in order to win some, right? So his desire is to want to please a lot of people. Interestingly, that verse is sandwiched between a verse like chapter 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then a few verses later, he says, imitate me, which is interesting. But clearly, there's a sense in which Paul's okay with pleasing people. Or even plainer, Romans 15, verses 1 through 3. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Then it says this, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. I'm gonna come back to that in a few minutes. But just the point here is this. There, like, so should we try to please, is it wrong to please others? Well, yes and no. So how do we put these two things together? It's not a contradiction, right? But how do these two things fit together in Paul's mind, because here he's commanding us to please people, right? And over here, he's, he's saying, you know, it would be wrong of me to be aiming to please man. So how do we fit it together? I think it all comes down to this. Which one are you aiming at? What's the primary thing that you are aiming at? Is it pleasing man or is it pleasing God? It, the emphasis is really going to be the issue. One way I thought about it is this. Okay, we have a couple, couple painters in our church, okay? They paint different things. I think of Dave Casper, right? He does drywall. So after he's, you know, hung the sheetrock, he's taped, he's muddied, he's sanded, like then he can paint. And he knows he's got to hang up sometimes some poly to catch the overspray, right? But when he's aiming at something, he knows there's going to be some overspray, okay? But he's aiming at an object and then there's going to be some overspray. Our brother Tyrell, he also paints, you know, doing finishing work at the wood shop, right? So he's painting and he knows that when he's painting this piece of furniture, there's going to be overspray, okay? He's aiming at this piece, but there's going to be overspray. I think that's the way that Christians should think about this, okay? If you're aiming at Christ, if you're aiming at honoring God, if you're aiming at desiring to please him in something, right? You can expect that there's going to be overspray. Like it's going to splatter beautifully on a lot of other people, right? And it can be intentionally so. But your aim is to aim at God. He's the object. He's the one that you're trying to please. If we get the order wrong, things are going to get real messy in our lives, right? And uh, so take that to heart. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these other things will be added. Our love for God is meant to overflow into our love for our neighbors, right? But we don't want to get the order messed up. What we aim at really matters. So aim 
at pleasing God and let the other things come. That's how I think that fits together. And so I hope you can hold that. We should try to please people, but not ultimately. But not ultimately. And it's, I think you're probably starting to see how quickly pleasing people can become more ultimate. Are you seeing that in your own heart? So just to underline the danger of this, for some of us, the greatest foothold of Satan in our life is the crippling fear of man. And my pastoral ache as I've been preparing this, knowing that I have to fight the fear of man in different ways, my ache is to see God's people free in this area because it's so crippling to be controlled by the fear of man. God wants his people to be free because it is dangerous to be controlled by this. It really is. Um, There will be disorder in every vile practice where a heart is just bent on this. It will start disrupting things in a multitude of ways. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So you start feeling that rise up. It's like, look at the the remedy. Trust in the Lord. And I'm gonna come back and develop that a little bit later, but just to highlight it there for you for a moment. But it says it's a snare, like an animal being caught in a trap. If the animal's caught in a trap, it can no longer do what it was meant to do, made to do, designed to do, right? It's kind of a tragic thing. It's a hard thing to watch even, to watch an animal caught in a trap. Um, so it is with us, you know, when a Christian is caught in the trap of the fear of man and that insatiable desire to please others, it's so debilitating. It's so crippling. Who will you be willing to be controlled by? That's the big question you have to ask. Where will you find your approval? And this is where I just want to bring you to the heart of the matter. You know, what is a proper starting place to respond to a word like this? To recognize the fear of man. Is it immediately, you know, in life to be like, okay, got to start pleasing God. Think Ultimately, we need to recognize, we need to recognize that we can't even begin to please God apart from Christ. We can't even begin to please him. Romans 8, verse 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So isn't that interesting? Like you could actually spend your life trying to please God and never for a day please God. Let that land. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We must come to Christ. It's the only way, you know. We're adrift in this world and we're always trying to find approval in some way and the gospel of Jesus Christ has a way of just centering us and just bringing us down to earth, like anchoring our souls by saying, look, I'm gonna tell you exactly where you're going to get the approval that your soul was made to have, okay? And that approval is only going to be found by repenting of sin and putting faith in Jesus Christ. Because when we do that, we are united to Christ by faith. And now the way that God sees us is radically different than the way we were seen before. When we are united to Christ by faith, we are now seen as righteous in his sight, approved, acceptable, When we are united to him by faith, God declares us righteous, legally righteous. We are justified by faith in Christ, which means this is how God sees us now. 
He sees us through the lens of his son. And if God sees us that way, how should we see ourselves? Acceptable. Acceptable in the beloved. This will absolutely change our lives. It's not meant to be a doctrine that we just check the box off and be like, yep, justified by faith. I've heard that doctrine. I can give you an explanation. I didn't ask for an explanation. I was like, is, it, is this the thing that is sinking into the soul? That you're living daily, hourly with that sense of, I know that he's pleased with me. I know that he's pleased with me. And if God is pleased with me because I'm in Christ, what more do I need? You're not going to spend all day hunting for other people's approval if you're already pretty filled up with it from God himself. And this is what the gospel offers. Approval, not because of what we've done or because we're so worthy of praise or admiration, right? But it's because Christ is and we're united to him and what's his is ours. God sees us this way. It almost seems too good to be true, but it's not. And think about this. That was the end of that Romans 15, verse three. It says, you know, after it got done saying, seek to please your neighbor for his good, to build him up. Then it says, for Christ did not please himself. (laughs) Think about him on the cross. Was he there for himself? Like, I mean, he was seeking to glorify his father. That's why at the end of the day in the garden, he was willing to say, not my will, but your will be done. I want to please my father. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. There's nothing else I want in this life than to please my father. That is what drove Jesus Christ to the cross. We got the overspray. That's beautiful, isn't it? And that was intentional on his part. He aimed at the glory of his father and we got way more beautiful because of it. And that's why we can be encouraged today. This is why we don't have to be slaves to the fear of man because that's true. We have been thoroughly splattered by the love of the son for the father. In his dying breath, he's brought us life. And uh, so we don't have to be in this snare anymore. We can be free. We're meant to live with this faithful sense of God's approval. And I hope that you'll feel that more today and that you'll take time to think about that today. And this launches us into this desire to please God. Now that we're right with God in Christ, we should make it our aim to please him. Some people want to immediately cry, legalism! Like, no, it's gospel-filled obedience. To actually find our approval in Christ, like children, you know, our children every day, like when children's hearts are being thoroughly nourished and shaped, they should desire to want to please their parents. Not so that their parents will love them. Their parents already love them, but because they love them and because they're delighted in, they want to please their parents. That's a healthy thing. That's, that's a beautiful thing when it's coming out of a right heart, not trying to just get them to love them, but it's because they love them. They want to please them. And uh, so we... Seek to please God with our lives. We want to live wisely out of a proper fear of the Lord, a desire to please God. And this comes when our decisions and our actions are based on what God thinks and what God wants. That's ultimate for us. That's what we're aiming at. And here's some examples, right? And I'm going to do some of these really quick. And uh, I think they'll be kind of fun, but 
Think about these positive examples in the New Testament, Old and New Testament, okay? So Bible examples first. Think of Noah. Crazy guy. I mean, building the ark for decades. God's given this command. He's got this blueprint, and his neighbors are like, this dude is nuts. But he's up at his ladder. They're at the bottom mocking him, and he's just like pounding away. It's like one thing to do that for a week. It's another thing to do it for a month. Maybe another thing to do it for a year, but like decades until this thing is built. Noah didn't care. Why? He wasn't controlled by what man thought. He was controlled by what God said and what God thinks, right? So being controlled by the word of God led to the ark being built, his family being rescued, and this beautiful picture of how God rescues us in Christ uh, being set out for us. Or take Caleb and Joshua, the flip side of the spies, right? They were sent out in the land too. They scoped it out. They thought the grape clusters were beautiful. They saw the land flowing milk, and they saw the giants. And so when they were giving their response, their focus was not on the giants. Their focus was on, let's go. <laughs> like, God gave us a promise. He's giving us this land. What, what are we sitting around talking about? Let's go, right? And they entered the promised land, didn't they? They did. They didn't forget that they were rescued out of Egypt. They didn't forget that they walked through on dry land through a sea. They didn't forget the commands that God gave them at Sinai. And they didn't forget how God has been with them up to this point. All of those things were allowed to factor into that moment, to that situation. And that's what's controlled the heart right? And so they said, let's go. David and Goliath. How many Israelites were ready to go fight Goliath? (laughs) Right? They were afraid of a very big man, right? They were afraid. But for David, what was his focus? It was not that that King Saul was like, I'm not so sure about this. His doubts didn't really matter at that point, right? His own brothers didn't even think he should be on the line to begin with, right? He's hearing things said about the God of Israel that he cannot stand, right? So what's he aiming at? His own fame? The glory of the God of Israel and the giant came down, right? With one smooth stone. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? (laughs) Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, they're told that they have to bow down before the statue of the king, right? They're meant to bow down, pay homage. It's all good. Do it, you'll be safe. Don't do it, you're going in the fiery furnace. Their answer is, turn the furnace up. (laughs) Like In other words, they're not going to fear man and be controlled by that. And that was costly, right? It was costly. I don't want to make light of it. But what was controlling? What God thought. They knew God would not be pleased by them bowing down to this idol. And so they didn't. And they were willing to deal with the cost. Think about the prophets, the good prophets, right? What controlled them? God's word controlled them, right? They weren't going to tell people what they wanted to hear. Ahab the wicked king Ahab, he hated, was it Elijah? I mean, just hated Elijah. Like, would you just tell me one thing that I want to hear? I know what you're going to say. That's why I didn't call for you, you know? Like, but Elijah, he didn't care. At the end of the day, he cared about pleasing God and he knew that he had to give a true word, right? He was a steward of the word and that's what he was called to give. 
Or think of, this is so beautiful. This is so beautiful to us in family worship the other day. Remember Mary, not the mother of Jesus, but different Mary that anointed Jesus with oil? And she took that alabaster flax, the, uh, flax that is worth so much money, so expensive, right? And she broke it and she poured it on Jesus, right? Now you think about it. She got all kinds of responses, right? She could have even anticipated some of those responses. What are you doing? You could have given that money to the poor. Yeah, Judas, like you really cared about the poor, right? Um, you could have, you could have um, done so much with that, that money. What are, what are you doing? That's so wasteful. You know when you break that thing and like, you can't, can't reuse it again? She's just like, I know exactly what I'm doing. And I'm not here to please you guys. I want to honor my Lord and I want to recognize his worth. And what did Jesus say? You just did a beautiful thing. People are going to be talking about it. And that's why we're talking about it right now. Because she didn't fear man. She wasn't controlled by what man thought. She was controlled by, by what God thought, what Christ thought in that moment. And her life was beautiful because of it. What a freeing place to be. And really our ultimate example of of not pleasing man, but pleasing God is Jesus himself, right? We just look at his life, literally every single thing he did. There was never a moment, and I think that's why he stood out so much in large part, is he just was not a slave to the fear of man at all. (laughs) Not even a little, like none. Every single thing he did was just controlled, happily controlled by what his father wanted for him. And that is like the freedom that we are aiming at. It will be costly at times, but we see it beautifully in the life of Christ. And um, so we have all of these examples from the Bible, not to mention the one in our text from Paul himself. Paul was such an example of this. All of his ministry was not about himself, not about, um, about pleasing man ultimately, but about God. And look at the fruitfulness from it but there's so many examples in our day. You could flip the ones that we had earlier. What would parenting look like when parents are not controlled by the whims of their children, but why what God wants? Getting clear on what God wants and letting that really shape every aspect of their parenting. And I can guarantee you this from experience, your children will not always like it, right? They won't always like it, but take the long-term view. This is one of the things. Take the long-term view. Pleasing God now is going to make the difference later. Don't take the short, quick fix escapes just because it's, you know, will appease the, <laughs> the wrath of an angry child, you know, in a moment. It's not worth it. We get to be free in our parenting to actually love our children well when our hearts are bent on pleasing God. We have to answer to him. What about our employers? I mean, what a freeing way to live at work when we're like, ultimately, we're trying to please God. So they ask you to do something sketchy. Mm-mm. Nope, because we're ultimately seeking to please God. Could it be costly at times? Maybe, but your integrity is worth it, and ultimately the reputation of Christ is worth it, but it's a freeing way to live. I get to live before the Lord. Friends, not being controlled by their thoughts or their desires, ultimately. Aim at Christ, pleasing God, and let them get the overspray. It'll enrich all of your friendships. Be willing. I I see a, a willingness to to please God and aim to please God in a willingness to say hard things sometimes. In a healthy family, in a healthy church, in a healthy marriage, in healthy relationships, willingness to say hard things. You know, if it's really truly for someone's good in a spirit of love. Um, See a willingness to share the gospel. 
This is what it's come down to in a lot of what's controlling our heart in that moment when we have opportunity. I want to please the Lord today. I want to please him. And even though I know that this is going to be a little awkward for this person and for me <laughs> at this moment, like I'm thinking 10,000 years from now. I'm thinking this person standing before the risen Christ. I'm thinking about this person not being ready, right? To give an account for their souls. And I'm going to open my mouth because I know that it pleases the Lord to do that. Um, showing hospitality. Come on into the pig pen. <laughs> like a willingness to say, okay, this is where we're at right now, but we really want to love you. And so this is kind of the best we can do. And ultimately I'm doing it for the Lord and I want it to be a blessing and a help to you. But uh, if you're going to judge me from a few extra crumbs or the ugly dishes I got, it's on you. You answer before the Lord, but I'm doing it to please him, right? Um, or that willingness to stop a gossiper or a slanderer. Wow, does that take a little bit of backbone to be able to go like, do you think this is pleasing to God right now? That's a good question to bring up right now. I didn't think so. Moving on, okay? But that's, seriously, that's what's needed in a moment like that. We all need that kind of course correction. Um, be able to say no sometimes for the greater good. I mean, people will drive, the person could say yes to all these things and then their family could be going to, to ruin over here because the priorities are out of whack, right? So you have to all these things, but your own soul is rotting because you're not spending the time with the Lord that you want. So take the, you have to say no sometimes. You need wisdom. Um, be willing to be vulnerable because you already have the approval from God that you need, right? So you can, you can share things with others to get the help that you need. Um, you can strive for excellence to please God without being crippled by this perfectionism that can come out of a fear of man. Um, you don't, need to demand um, affirmation, but you can appreciate it when it comes. There's a huge difference there. To not have to have it and crave it all the time, but it's like when it comes, like, thank you. That's encouraging. I appreciate that, you know, but you weren't living off of it, you know. Um, You can graciously receive criticism. That's a sign that you're not fearing man. Okay, don't always love being told things like that, but... um, appreciate it. I'm not going to unravel because of it. And, uh, you know, and not all criticism is true either. So you can weigh it out, you know, uh, test everything, hold fast to what is good, but you're not so threatened in a moment like that as if your approval really depended on them. So it just gives so much freedom here. The heart of the matter is we want to love people more than we need them. We want to love people more than we need them. We want to please God above all, such that we're not controlled by the fear of man, but a sweet consciousness of who God is and what he's done for us and what he wants for us. And those things are controlling our hearts. It just gives us peace. And so I want to encourage us. I know that hearing a word like this, you're probably going, well, some of you are like, first of all, I didn't even know what the fear of man was. Then you told me it and then, whoa. Like (laughs) I'm seeing a lot more of my heart than I planned to see today. Um, But I just want to say, this is the grace of confession, to be able to confess our sins to the Lord. We want, it's a grace to be able to see our hearts, to be able to see where we fall short, to be able to see what's controlling us, because things can change. And so I want to encourage you, if you've you've seen some things in your heart today that are not very pretty, something you're seeing that I'm being crippled by this, some things that are controlling you, that's not a desire to please God. I want to encourage you to confess these things to the Lord. I mean, he tests our hearts. He sees them anyway. So what a mercy to see them and talk to him about them. 
and just recognize that God is purifying us. And God will use a lot of his circumstances, and I can testify to this personally. God will use a lot of circumstances and trials to purify our hearts, and part of purifying our hearts is to burn out the fear of man in us. Sometimes it takes a deep burn, a deep burn. But it might be a deep burn, but it's a controlled burn. You know how like foresters will do like controlled burns? The point is, you know, to aim at the health of the forest, the long-term health of the forest, right? God's aiming at the long-term health of your heart, right? He doesn't need all the quick fixes like we do, right? So he's taking the long-term look at your heart going, I know what's going to lend to your freedom. I know what's going to lend to your joy. I know what's going to really build you up at the end of the day. What's going to really set your heart free. I don't want you to be ensnared. This is how God thinks about it. And so come to him with confession and recognize that, yeah, he's probably trying to burn some of this off in your, in your life. And that's a gift from God. And he uses his word to do it. I think we all struggle with the fear of man. Maybe it will help you to hear that. I think we all struggle with the fear of man. But this is a big part of recognizing it for what it is, seeing it as a temptation, and then actually being able to combat it. And this is what I close with to be able to combat the fear of man. Here's some things, right? So the problem is God is often small in our minds and people are often too big. The solution is God must be big and the people must become smaller yet precious to us, okay? And so we, the big part of what we need is we got to cultivate um, a self-awareness by asking what is controlling me. We need to ask that question more often. What's controlling me right now? What's controlling my response, my attitude in this situation? Um, What's controlling my decision making? Um, And also cultivate a God awareness. And this is even bigger. A guide of kind of God consciousness. Like, think about it this way. When you're going to go to prayer, if you just charge in a lot of times, you're feeling dull and you just start talking and and our hearts are just kind of checked out. But we just take a minute to stop and say, who am I praying to? And you start thinking about who God is and his attributes, what he's like from the Bible. And all of a sudden, like that picture is getting filled up. All of a sudden, you're like, okay, let's pray. <laughs> you know, it carries way more weight. Sometimes we have, to, we have to slow down and we have to say, okay, who am I doing this for? Who am I doing this for? What does God think of me and what does God want for me? Letting that be the controlling thing. And as I said before, the fear of man lays a snare but those who trust in the Lord are safe. So what's the ultimate remedy for the fear of man? Trust in the Lord. And so Jerry Bridges says this about trusting the Lord. He said, trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold of the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seem to overwhelm us. And I want you to notice one specific thing that he says there. It's a vigorous act of the soul. If you're passive, you are going to cave to the fear of man all the time. It's just going to happen. Faith is active. We have to continually trust, but not vague things, specific things. I really want you to walk away with this because I think this is a huge part of the remedy. You recognize some fear of man starting to creep up in the soul, starting to cripple you, and you say, I got to grab onto something. I got to grab onto something concrete, something specific. So you start thinking, okay, what is God like? Meditate on specific aspects of God's character, okay? 
Meditate on specific truths or promises from Scripture. You've got to grab on to specific things. This is what I'm trusting to get me out of this pit. Because trusting God is the pathway out of this crippling fear of man. It's, this is worth fighting for to get free. So we're going to come to the table. And um, um, before we do, instead of doing a congregational prayer, what I would want to encourage us to do is take a moment to pray. A prayer of confession and also a prayer of renewal. Because when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is a covenant renewal. We are, in a sense, renewing our covenant with the Lord and expressing our desire to like, Lord, I want to please you. Like, I'm acceptable in your sight because of the blood of Christ, and I want to live to please you. You know, I want to honor you with this life. I don't want to be controlled by these other things. So talk to God about the ways that you have been feeling controlled by this fear of man. Confess it to him. Receive his fresh forgiveness and, um, and relish in the fact that you have the approval that you need in Christ. And lest I assume that, if you're here and you don't know Christ, um, this meal is not for you. This is those who have found their approval from God through faith in Jesus Christ. We want for you to have that. We long for you to have that. But until you do, this meal is not for you. So it's very important that you don't partake until that's true of you. And so go ahead and take a few moments. Um, I'll let the ushers kind of get, get ready. And then, um, and then I will pray right after um, we had those few moments of silent prayer, of confession and renewal. Father, we're thankful that we can draw near to you on the basis of the blood of your son. We know that his blood was shed to cover all our sins, including our sin of the fear of man when we are controlled by what other people think of us. And Lord, we do confess that before you. And we're so thankful with you there is plentiful redemption and that you do forgive our sins. You are faithful and just to forgive our sins when we confess them to you. So Lord, let a fresh cleansing come over your people now. And as we come to your table, may we just relish in the fact that we are approved, Lord, by you. May our souls pant for you. May our hearts thirst for you. And may our greatest desire be to please you, Lord. Set your people freer. And for those here, Lord, that are not approved by you because they're disconnected from your son, Lord, I pray have mercy on them. May they run to Christ in a time when he may be found. Turn from their sin and trust him. Stop running to the world for approval and affirmation. Instead, come to Christ and be approved. So Lord, have mercy on them. And Lord, I pray that you'd be pleased as you host us at this table. And thank you that we get to partake of um, the cup and the bread, reminding ourselves of the broken body and the shed blood. In Jesus' name, amen.